episode 213 the Stem Cell Podcast, Hematopoietic Stem Cell Biology, with Dr. Kelly McNagney. Hey, everybody. We are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Once again, we'd like to remind everyone about the upcoming ISSCR 2022 annual meeting taking place in San Francisco, as well as virtually from June 15th to the 18th. Early registration closes March 9th and advanced registration closes April 13th. Arun and I will be attending the meeting in person and we hope to see you there. And don't forget that the deadline for late breaking abstracts is March the 23rd. So be sure to get those in and meet up with us in glorious San Fran. Today, we have Dr. Kelly McNagney from the University of British Columbia on the podcast to talk about his research, understanding the signaling networks that regulate hematopoietic stem cell differentiation and how these cells interact with their microenvironment. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, Stem Cell Technologies has been in the field of hematopoietic stem and progenitor research for over 20 years. And during that time, they've learned a thing or two. Visit stemcell.com slash hemahub for educational resources to help you further your research um, on hematopoiesis and hematological malignancies. Speaking of hematological malignancies, that lines up well with our guest. And Dr. McNagney is also a specialist in understanding the signaling networks that regulate hematopoietic stem cell differentiation. As I just said, my first roundup story is a bit of a hack I would say on how we might be able to leverage synthetic biology in hematopoietic systems uh, to say the least, but also in any system to try and control the biology of cells. Um, so, you know, going to lesser organisms uh, in microbial communities, cells secrete these diffusive signals uh, in order to communicate. It's something called quorum sensing that you might've heard. Um, and in multicellular organisms, of course, intercellular communication is essential for a lot of things. You know, in development, you've got to get the patterning. That's really key to have the intercellular communication. But also in adulthood, coordinating that organism level physiology, that requires a lot of intercellular signaling, right? Um, so there's these synthetic or an idea of these synthetic intercellular communication systems uh, that have really come up in the past decade or two. Um, as we've started to appreciate the, the ways that we might leverage cells to be tools for therapies. Um, and in bacteria, this has been studied uh, to couple the quorum sensing, so these microbial communities, to couple that quorum sensing system to cell death. And what that results in is these bacterial communities that limit their own population size, or you can hack it in a different way to drive these synchronized oscillations of X. In this case, um, or in some cases, they use it for drug release or other therapeutic applications. So you essentially have a switch and a system where you can control that switch uh, by meeting certain thresholds. In mammalian cells, uh, it would be great if we could do this, if we could enable uh, an analogous type of system and there have been efforts to do this. Uh, cells have been, mammalian cells have been engineered to try and rewire the signaling pathways, for example, hedgehog signaling or not signaling. 
But these aren't closed endogenous systems. They're kind of input and the output is whatever you've coupled it to, but they're not um, kind of this uh, uh, closed system, an endogenous system. And the ideal uh, closed system would have a diff diffusible signal, right? Um, you know, in these mammalian systems, they had a, a, a pseudo closed system that was based on not signaling, but that demanded cell cell contact. So this is an alternative. You'd want a diffusible system um, and you'd want to avoid undesired interactions with the non-engineered cells. So it was closed. It's just, you know, the, the engineered versus engineered speaking to themselves and having this internal mechanism for feedback. Um, and you'd also want it to be able to, to be responsive, that you can tweak it to control the strength of the signaling. And also you want it to work in all kinds of cell types, right? So to these ends, the lab of Michael Elowitz, who's at California Institute of Technology in the cell engineering uh, department, of course, apropos, um, they settled on auxins, okay? And auxins are uh, from plants. There are these hormones in plants that coordinate a lot of the tropisms, you know, the geotropism, phototropism, using uh, th this call response type system. Um, and what they did is they, they call it this paradoxical population control circuit. Um, I think they called it paradoxical just so they could name it paradox, you know, AUX for the auxin. Um, but for whatever reason, they named it that. This paradox uh, system in it, in mammalian cells, auxin stimulates and inhibits net cell growth depending on the, the concentration. Um, and they had this proof of principle that they set up here that showed that they hacked the, the, the cells, they could get uh, limit, limit the population size over the course of 42 days. Okay. And this is a big deal because if you otherwise just let cells go willy nilly, they'll just grow, right? Um, in an uncontrollable way. So this is uh, going harking back to this bacterial system where they limit the population growth. Um, but the real key here is versus this system, the paradox setup in these cells, if they didn't have the paradox and just let them go continuously, what happens is you get mutational escape. You get these mutations, um, which you know often you will see with uncontrolled cell growth. So th that's it really. I mean, it's, it's this proof of principle where they, they set up this auxin-based system and then applied it in mammalian cells. And the idea here is to extend this to, I mean, for example, uh, engineering uh, cell therapies that will allow, for example, let's say you have a CAR T targeting a cancer, you could have a system where the cells are distributed widely, but once they target the cancer and reach a certain threshold or quorum, um, that then they will turn on their therapeutic activity. You know, in the case of a CAR T, it would kind of be moot because the attacking the cancer is what it does, but you can imagine coupling that with some other type of therapeutics. And, you know, the, there's all kinds of other uh, permutations by which you can, you can set up these engineered circuits in biological systems toward a therapeutic end. And uh, granted, this isn't a stem cell story per se, but I love the idea of leveraging this approach in these, you know, nascent, uh, organ onlages to try and there is a therapeutic approach of let's make cells that we can put in people and they'll only act when they get to a certain place. But I, I'm thinking more big picture that you might be able to apply the similar technology to try and manipulate uh, the formation of 
you know, micro tissues or organs from, from cells. So I think there's a lot of application here. That's why I chose it for the roundup, not a stem cell story per se, but I think the applications are myriad. Arun, tell me what you think. Not a stem cell story per se, but we can definitely turn it into a stem cell story. This is a very Caltech story, if you know what I mean, you know, talking about synthetic bio, which is all the the rage these days, manipulating cells and different cell types to make things and do things that they're not supposed to do initially. And I think, yeah, the cancer application is, is a good one and the regulation of CAR-T so that they can reach a certain, certain threshold and then do their thing. But turning it into a stem cell story, I think one potential application where this might be interesting is if you can introduce some of these systems into, say, iPSCs or differentiating cell types, which are often really critically regulated by cell confluency. And where I'm going with this is, you know, certain differentiation protocols out there, even cardiac differentiation, which I do, you have to have that Goldilocks zone, that sweet spot of cell confluency. And if you go too high, if you go overconfluent, then some of these things happen, like what you're talking about, the mutational accumulation, all these things, and cells don't differentiate, right? So maybe you can even co-opt these mechanisms and these synthetic biopathways into properly regulating stem cell differentiation, which has to reach a, a perfect Goldilocks kind of zone. I don't know. It's one application. I actually really like the, the uh, bioengineering applications that you're talking about as well. Maybe you can use these to create more advanced tissue types by auto-regulating the, the cell size and cell quorum and cell number in certain structures. But yeah, I think the sky's the, the limit for this kind of technology. Yeah, super, super exciting. And, you know, I think just, again, big picture, this, this whole idea of bioengineering and cell biology coming together is so exciting. And, and you see, once you get these two fields together that, you know, the, the bird's eye view might be, okay, we need engineers to create structures out of cells. But here, I think it's a much deeper idea here where you're trying to really recapitulate the majesty of nature in this synthetic system by programming it in the way that nature has over the course of eons of evolution, but we can hack it to try and incorporate some of this kind of feedback and threshold cycling to impose some order and patterning in these systems that, you know, we can't, we can't do it all. We can't put these things together cell by cell. We're never going to get there. We need the cells to make the tissues on their own. And I think this is one way that we can get there. I couldn't tell you how. I'm not the synthetic biologist or engineer, but I'm waiting for the Alowitz group to uh, lead the way. Absolutely. A lot of respect for the synthetic bio folks out there because oftentimes they can make tools that down the road, the rest of us non-synthetic bio folks might be able to, to utilize, right? It's pretty exciting. So we're going to shift gears uh, a little bit to a heart-centric story. It's another kind of technology story, nothing to do with synthetic bio per se, but I actually really like this one because it's following up on a trail of a lot of other stories of this type of this type uh, that, that have emerged in the stem cell and direct reprogramming fields over the last decade plus. The title of the story is Ultra Efficient Extracellular Vesicle Guided Direct Reprogramming of Fibroblasts into Functional Cardiomyocytes. This is a Science Advances article coming from the lab of Sunhwa Kim over there in the Korean Institute of Science and Technology, or KIST. First off, there is Cusick um, Kim, and and this is a this is a topic that we've covered a 
bit here on the show, direct reprogramming of one cell type into another without going through any sort of IPS intermediate. And it's been explored ad nauseum over the last decade plus. I mean, the, the, the lab that really, I think, first caught my attention in the cardiac field, especially when it came to direct reprogramming was Deepak Srivastava, you know, a guest of ours on the show. He published this paper, I think in like 2010 or something, where they were able to show direct reprogramming both in vitro and in vivo of fibroblasts into cardiomyocytes. And the downstream application is potentially utilizing that technology to transform the fibrotic scar tissue in the heart after a myocardial infarction into functioning cardiomyocytes. Easier said than done, sure. And there have been other applications, other cell types, tissue types that have utilized this direct reprogramming approach as well. Marius Vernig, of course, converting fibroblasts into neurons and a bunch of other folks have done stuff like this too. But in general, it's been a pretty inefficient process for the heart at least. And and it's improved over time, but I, I don't think it's ever gotten to the point where it's able to supplant and take over iPSC differentiation into cardiomyocytes. This paper might throw a wrench into that. They're able to show, I mean, it's the first word in their title, ultra efficient, right? Ultra that catches your attention. So they're able to show pretty efficient, what they say, greater than 60%, which I, I still don't think is ultra efficient. It's pretty efficient because with IPS differentiation into cardiomyocytes, that can be pretty ultra efficient, greater than 95%. So I would say this is efficient, but you know, it's semantics, right? Anyways, so they're basically uh, studying direct lineage conversion, turning fibroblasts, MEFs, mouse embryonic fibroblasts, into uh, cardiomyocyte-like cells. So they don't call them cardiomyocytes per se. Um, But the real key here is how they did this. They were actually harnessing extracellular vesicles from two different stages in the cardiac differentiation process. So the first group of vesicles is from going from uh, embryonic stem cells to mesoderm induction. You harness all the vesicles in that stage. And the second stage is going from mesoderm to cardiomyocyte maturation, and you pull together the vesicles in that stage. And what they did is they, after they collected all the EVs, extracellular vesicles, they threw them on to fibroblasts in addition to GSK3 beta inhibitor and TGF beta inhibitor. And over a certain amount of time, that was enough. That was all they needed to actually turn these fibroblasts into induced cardiomyocytes, which is pretty wild if you think about it. It's just literally throwing vesicles on these cells, terminally differentiated fibroblasts, and then transforming them into induced myocytes. No sort of genetic manipulation here. It's just exogenous vesicles containing different microRNAs. That was their their key here. I think there's still a lot of work that has to happen in terms of figuring out the mechanisms as to how this reprogramming is actually happening. But if it's really greater than 60%, just by throwing some vesicles on fibroblasts and then turning them into myocytes, which are functional, by the way, they they contract, they have uh, action potentials, they have the standard cardiomyocyte structures, even though they don't call them cardiomyocytes, they call them cardiomyocyte-like cells, uh, it, it's, it's still really nifty. It's really neat, in, in my opinion, because it's, a I think, a faster process as opposed to going from fibroblast back to iPSC and then back to cardiomyocytes. You can go directly from fibroblast to myocyte without going through that iPS intermediate step, right? Um, 
I, I'm a fan of directory programming. I know some people, you know, shy away from it. I'm a fan of it. It's just faster and more efficient in some ways. And uh, if, if it's really as efficient as they show in this particular paper by just throwing some vesicles on some fibroblasts, then, hey, maybe more people will start adopting it. Yeah. The uh, directory programming, um, I was shocked and realized how old I am when you just said uh, it was over a decade ago that Deepak had those seminal studies. But I think that's a good good thing to emphasize. That was over a decade ago. And, uh, you know, the direct reprogramming stories, I wouldn't say they've gone by the wayside, but they've receded, certainly, in terms of the volume of those stories that you see um, published nowadays. And, of course, the 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 applications, I guess, the translation of the direct reprogramming. I, I don't know that maybe I'm just missing, but I haven't seen a lot of that out there. And I, I get it. The idea, it's so, uh, it's such an attractive uh, concept, right? That you can just directly without the going back to the IPS cell. But I have, I have a lot of questions just generally, not about this study. I was really impressed. In fact, I would say of all the things that you want to, you know, proof, uh, uh, direct reprogramming, the, the cardiomyocytes, great, because MEF don't contract, right? So you have a really clear readout in terms of the functionality, you know, whether or not they function in vivo, although I, I think they did do some MI models in this to, to show that there was some benefit. The real question for me, it surrounds this whole idea of the nomenclature. When you have to call something a blank like cell, and I get it, that's what they do for all the IPS drive, by, by the way. Everything that comes from pluripotent cells, because it's not, because it's like an embryonic correlate or a fetal correlate, whatever, the, the editors all insist on having the blank like cell. I get that. But in my mind, I know that the path that that cell took to get to that place has a physiological precedent you know, in development with an IPS cell versus with the direct reprogramming. These things don't exist in nature and the intermediates don't exist. They're so far out. They're from Mars. So that's my qualm with uh, direct reprogramming just conceptually. But here, this story going beyond that, whether or not it's ever going to get off the ground into people, I think is, is less important in this story than the, the idea and the concept of these extracellular vesicles having such a pronounced biological influence. And granted, they were super concentrated, but like just brings the question to my mind that any, in any system where you have one cell doing something next to another cell that's doing something else, that there might be some, you know, some vesicles coming out of the one cell that are influencing the other. And in, in development where things are so precise and balanced, I'm really interested to, I'm curious about whether or not there's some bystander effect with every cell due to these EVs floating around. And granted, maybe they're never reaching the concentration that these authors use, but still conceptually for me, it's a real, it's a real, uh, it's a real twist, you know, it, ma it makes me think. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think the concentration is probably the reason why maybe we're not seeing this as much in vivo. Maybe there is some level of it in vivo, but these are hyper-concentrated EVs that are being forced to reprogram the fibroblasts into um, these induced myocytes. The nomenclature point is actually a really good one. And if you think about it, we call uh, 
I actually think we're biased. We're really biased in the IPS and stem cell field towards IPSCs as opposed to the direct reprogrammed cells. We call these cells, these direct reprogrammed cells, cardiomyocyte-like. And I think the field in general just calls IPSC cardiomyocytes cardiomyocytes. It's almost like that is analogous to true adult human cardiomyocytes, but we know for a fact that they're not. IPSC-derived cardiomyocytes, for the most part, are not analogous to, uh, you know, one-to-one to to adult cardiomyocytes. So we can call those cardiomyocyte-like too, but I do think the, the reprogramming folks are, uh, they, they take the short end of the stick and they get the, the cardiomyocyte-like cells. I've actually seen that multiple times in these papers. Now that you've mentioned it in these direct reprogramming papers, they're all, they're all the cardiomyocyte-like or blah, 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 like cells, but IPSCs, they're the true thing, even though they're not. (laughs) Yeah, listen, if I'm coming off an MI, I'll take any like cell. Uh, but, you know, if I had my choice, I'd take the CMs. But let's hope I never get to that point, shall we, Arun? Moving on to another potential demise of my own, with the kidneys. Now, I think I'm doing all right with my kidneys, but I got a story about those kidneys that aren't in such good shape. This is uh, about chronic kidney disease, which affects, uh, I didn't know this, up to 13 percent of the worldwide population, which is a big number. Uh, and, you know, the, the nature of injury is really critical when you're talking about the kidney, uh, because the chronic kidney disease results from repeated acute kidney injury. But normally, uh, these kidney tubular cells, when there's injury, they repair by the terminally differentiated epithelia, at least it's thought. Uh, they, the terminally differentiated epithelia, they de-differentiate, proliferate, um, and, and, you know, restore the tubules. And there's been no progenitor that's been identified in adults. So that's what, what leads to that thinking. Um, and that's normal. Uh, but when you have severe or recurrent injury, uh, you get a failure in the repair, uh, which manifests as cell cycle arrests, atrophy of the tubules, this myofibroblast transdifferentiation, which, you know, car- cardiomyocytes undergo. Um, well, that's a part of MI and the, and the sequelae and maladaptive healing of MI, as well as the interstitial fibrosis. So these are all familiar elements of this maladaptive healing process uh, that leads to chronic kidney disease. And in animal, you know, of course, we've studied this for a long time. And in mice, and other animal studies, we've learned a lot about the, the mechanisms and maybe some of the molecules involved. But translating those insights into the clinic and treating humans with chronic kidney disease it hasn't worked out because a lot of the treatments that have worked in these animal models, uh, they haven't worked in humans. In fact, quite the contrary, they're found to be nephrotoxic. Um, at worst, they're just ineffective at best in clinical trials. So that leads to the work from Ryuji Morizani, who's at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, also the Wies Institute, um, Mass General Hospital, where they were using kidney organoids to model this transition from that physiological intrinsic repair to that maladaptive uh, repair. Uh, and the way they did this is using kidney organoids, of course, because you can't get in there with the human kidneys very easily. Um, and they did some genomics, some single cell transcriptomics uh, on kidney organoids that they made and exposed to cisplatin. And uh, that's a key element because, you know, cisplatin and chemotherapy, generally speaking, is a major 
cause of uh, kidney injury. Um, so there's a huge unmet need there. Uh, and looking at the transcriptomic evidence following cisplatin in these organoids, they found that there's these homology-directed repair genes that were upregulated, two in particular, FANC-D2 and RAD-51, that were translated upregulated. Um, but once you tipped over to that maladaptive incomplete repair, they were downregulated. So they were no longer operative. Um, and then they went into the mouse and looked at these models of this hemodynamic kidney injury. Uh, and also in human kidney samples that had immune mediated injury and showed a similar thing that uh, these HDR genes were upregulated during tubular repair. And then of course they went to biopsy samples um, with, with in patients where there was fibrosis and showed that indeed those HDR genes, specifically FANC-D2, was lost. So th they show in these human correlates and mouse correlate systems in vivo that it, similar things are happening as they observed in the organoids. And this is the key and why I made it into science translational medicine, is that they perform this drug screening to try and find uh, some, you know, something that would, would have a therapeutic effect and identify this DNA ligase 4 inhibitor SCR7, and show that it was able to rescue uh, that FANC-D2 slash RAD51 mediated repair um, in an organoid model that was tipped over into that maladaptive process. So I, I, I was really impressed with this study for that last element. You know, we've seen a lot of people looking at organoids and the idea of modeling chemotherapy exp exposure or kidney injury using organoids in vitro is basic, but them tipping it over to this, to identifying a drug candidate, I think is really, really a critical finding here, especially when you consider all the fruits from these animal studies looking at nephrotoxicity and, and ways that we might mitigate it have not borne out. So it's nice to see that, you know, taking it out of the animals and going into a human system in vitro, exploding organoids is able to identify a candidate, and I'd be interested to see how they're going to bring this into preclinical or phase one trial. Yeah, this is a line of stories, and this, this line of stories is very popular in science translational medicine, I got to say, you know, doing the organoid approach, the in vitro approach, combining with the in vivo, uh, and then looking at human tissues as well. That's a really great stretch and a uh, great stretch of approaches to actually get you into science translational medicine. And I, yeah, I agree with you. I think having the drug candidate is fantastic. Maybe you can carry this forward into more translational studies, clinical trials, all that good stuff. I mean, one side thing, I've worked with a little bit with uh, Dr. Morizane when I was in Boston. He's a brilliant kidney slash stem cell biologist. And I think honestly, one of the best in the field. It's great that he finally has his own lab as well. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was this, the, the focus on cisplatin, right? One of the major causes of nephrotoxicity is, uh, is off-target toxicity of drugs like cisplatin, these different chemotherapeutic compounds. And the, the analogy is cisplatin to the kidney, like doxorubicin is to the heart. So there's a lot of chemotherapeutic agents out there that cause these off-target effects. And we're studying them in all sorts of model systems, like the, these organoids, they're 
apparent in all different tissue types. Like you focus on the reproductive tissue and that's a major issue with off-target toxicity of chemo. I focus on the heart. Ryuji focuses on the kidney. So here we are in 2022 and folks are still taking doxorubicin and cisplatin and they're still experiencing these off-target effects. So still is there's still a need for these model systems to perhaps predict who's going to actually get these off-target effects. That's, I think, a, a downstream application of some of this work and the other work that folks like I do, folks that you do, um, it's a, it's, it's a off-target toxicity is not going away, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a, a nice point there is that trying to twist this to the, to the ends of, of personalized or individualized treatment, you know, with IPS cells from patients to screen and see if they would be as susceptible to cisplatin or other treatments. So yeah, that's, that's another great uh, offering from this. And yeah, to, to just underscore your point, it is such a, a crazy idea, right? That we're, we've developed this in a whole field and a, in a, a lot of the unmet need here is curing the cure, right? We're curing the the, the sequelae that come from a, another cure that at this point is seeming more and more barbaric. But hopefully it won't be long now before we've, we've really completely supplanted or for the most part supplanted these ablative approaches for things that are more precise and targeted. And, you know, we talk about these stories every every episode. It seems like it won't be very long, at least I can hope. Fingers crossed. I'm perhaps a little bit more pessimistic than you are, honestly, <laughs> in part because of the accessibility of these next generation approaches, right? You're talking mm -hmm. about CAR-T and all these cool mm -hmm. cell-based therapies. They're, they're effective, but they're pricey. Whereas a small molecule like a cisplatin or doxorubicin, you can ship that around anywhere in the world. And while it's not perfect, it's, and it might do some damage to your kidney or to your heart, I guess the primary focus is still on the cancer, right? You have to get rid of that before you worry about anything else, which is the, the sad reality, right? Anyways, you know, thinking about something that's maybe not as pessimistic, but also kind of pessimistic. <laughs> um, moving on to uh, another organoid story. This is a nature communication story uh, titled Modeling Chlamydia and HPV Co-Infection in Patient-Derived Ectoservice or Ectocervix Organoids Reveals Distinct Cellular Reprogramming. Uh, like I mentioned, another organoid story focusing more on cervical organoids, which we've talked a little bit about here on the show. This is coming from the lab of uh, Simdrilla Chumduri over there at the Max Planck in Germany. Um, we've like, talked a little bit about HPV and different organoid models of HPV previously. I think we've actually even covered a few papers on this. But the thing I like about this particular story is that it's taking a, a two-hit approach. So they're talking about a co-infection with chlamydia and HPV um, in leading to cervical cancer, for example. And their implications in the pathogenesis of certain cancers is somewhat unclear, you know, this, this co-interaction. And that's sort of where they're using these organoids to, to study these mechanisms of the, the co-interaction of these different pathogens and leading to uh, cervical cancer, right? So they use patient-derived ectocervical organoids and modeled the co-infection dynamics of HPV with chlamydia, which is associated with carcinogenesis, right? And they, in particular, these ectocervical stem cells were manipulated to actually introduce certain oncogenes to mimic the HPV integration, which may lead to the cancerous phenotypes. The organoids derived actually from these stem cells created some cells that had precancerous lesions. You know, some of these precancerous lesions were showing up 
showing, but also showed active self-renewal capacity and the ability to actually organize into mature stratified epithelial cells. Um, and then the, the co-culture part of it is, I think, the coolest part. You uh, do a co-culture of the HPV with chlamydia, and there's actually a certain gene regulatory alteration in these cells and these organoids, these transcriptional and post-transcriptional responses that are elicited uh, only by the co-culture that are leading to distinct reprogramming of the host cellular processes, okay? And another interesting thing is apparently the, the chlamydia pathogen is impeding, you know, the HPV induced mechanisms that actually maintain the cellular and genomic integrity, okay, including mismatch repair. So I think the bottom line here is that the phenotypes that are listed by the co-culture of the chlamydia plus the HPV in these organoids is different than the single hit. So you really need this double hit to actually induce that, uh, the true carcinogenic phenotype. And it's a, it's a neat story. I think it's probably something that's applicable to other pathogens as well. You know, certainly there are other diseases out there where there may be a multi-hit hypothesis where two pathogens have to interact and come together to actually induce a downstream carcinogenic phenotype or whatever disease phenotype you're looking at. So I'm sure that this particular approach can be used in other situations, whether it's carcinogens, whether it's different environmental stimuli, whether it's pathogens, whatever. I think a two hit hypothesis is, is a really, it's, it's a real thing in, in medicine and biology, right? For sure. And uh, they've done a nice job of modeling. I like that they've introduced that concept of, of, you know, two hit and, uh, this isn't the same group that did the cervical organoids that you covered the last time, I don't think, but I mean, I'm surprised. I never thought that we would cover, you know, cervical organoids twice in a year, but here we are. Um, and it's important vis-a-vis -vis the chlamydia and HPV combo. I mean, a lot of people would say maybe that in the developed world now, HPV, it doesn't look like it's going to be an issue moving forward with vaccination, et cetera. But, you know, it, it still is a thing. Um, it's still pretty widespread and chlamydia is, you know, affects about 130 million people in 2020 alone worldwide, 130 million. I mean, that's a huge prevalence and it's, I don't want to call it a scourge, but it leads to a lot of, of, you know, un, un, unfortunate sequelae in the re reproductive space alone, you know, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease and infertility in women. And it's a disease that is enriched in young people right? It's a disease of people who are out there getting busy. And that's the issue, right? Because we want to keep, keep them safe um, because they're young and because there's so much time uh, for this, you know, oncogenic transformation to manifest and lead to, to cancer in them. So I, I, I think this is a really important story. And while people may be vaccinated against HPV, um, you know, you still got to keep your, keep your eyes open keep it clean out there, kids, you know, don't, don't get into any trouble I'm looking out for you. you don't oh, want to make man. any more cervical organoids to have to fix the things. <laughs> all right. So yeah, just, just putting that out there. I never thought we'd use the phrase getting busy on this podcast, but <laughs> here we are, but yeah, I mean, you know, bringing it back to the, the science, right. We've talked a lot about these different organoid approaches and how they're using to model all sorts of pathogens, whether it's Zika virus, whether it's chlamydia infection, HPV, whether it's SARS-CoV-2, as we've seen from the 
billion papers that have come out over the last couple of years, I think organoids, it's, it's a great model system to study pathogens and different environmental causes of disease. For sure. And it won't be the last time we talk about the kids getting busy or ruined. That's what the kids do. <laughs> All right. But sure. enough for now. We'll move on to our guest. But uh, before we get there, I have a brief message from Stem Cell Technologies. Gene editing stem cells works best when you're confident in the cells you're editing. Make sure your cells are still hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells by using StemSpan SFEM2 medium from Stem Cell Technologies in your research. Find out more by visiting stemspan.com. All right, everybody, for this episode, we have a special guest, Dr. Kelly McNagney, who is professor of medical genetics and biomedical engineering, also member of the Canadian Stem Cell Network Center of Excellence. He's at the University of British Columbia. And Kelly's research program is focused on hematopoietic stem cell biology, specifically He's focused on understanding the signaling networks that regulate stem cell differentiation and how these cells interact with their microenvironment. These processes have important implications in chronic allergy, asthma, and other inflammatory diseases. Dr. McNagney, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is ours. Welcome. Um, hematopoiesis, it's such a diverse field and is relevant to all aspects of health and disease. So why don't you start off by narrowing the scope a bit and expanding on my cursory intro that I gave there, your lab <laughs> focus, telling us uh, more about what your long-term goals are for the lab. Sure. So I, I trained as an immunologist and a stem cell biologist over the years, and I've been come increasingly interested in how um, inflammatory, chronic inflammatory diseases come about. And, and a lot of that has to do with how your hematopoietic cells differentiate. And so we're interested in how, um, how chronic diseases get started. And then also in trying to find ways that we can, we can guide them so you don't have a chronic inflammatory disease. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting topic. Actually, we were talking about ulcerative colitis right before the show, and certainly there's a number of different chronic inflammatory diseases out there. And like you said, it all kind of comes down to the ancestral HSC population, those uh, hematopoietic stem cells that are really important in differentiating, transforming into these subsequent blood lineages. But I wanted to talk specifically on that differentiation uh, process, and, and in particular, one question, I wanted to ask you one question that we always like to ask the folks who are in the hematopoietic stem cell field, like your colleague, actually, Dr. Connie Eves, who was on the show not too long ago. So what is, what is it going to take to actually produce bona fide hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent stem cells? So differentiating iPSCs or pluripotent stem cells into HSCs. And the, you know, hopefully these HSCs, iPS-derived HSCs can be maintain long-term self-renew, what's it going to take? I mean, it's a, it's a question that's been facing the field for a long time now. And I know a lot of folks are working on it and have made a number of different advances, different chemical approaches to actually maintain these IPS or stem cell derived HSCs long-term, but what do you think still needs to happen before this, you know, becomes a, a real reality? Yeah, there's a, <clears throat> there's a couple of tricky bits there. So when, when you make stem cells in a dish from IPSCs, they, they tend to look more like the ones you make as an embryo. And, and those are great for embryonic development. They're not quite as good for, um, for, for use in, in adults. 
So that, that's the tricky bit is walking them through that process of embryology in a dish. And we're making good advances of that in that area. I think if you, if you study embryology and use the lessons from, from uh, let's say mouse embryology or other animals, you can then get an idea of what you need to coax those cells in a dish to become the cells you wanna use for a transplant. So I think that that's the major barrier. And then the second one, of course, is, um, is compatibility, right? So, you know, you, you can make my stem cells in a dish, but they won't be all that great for transplanting into you because we're, we're mismatched in terms of uh, MHC and histocompatibility. And that's really a, a tough nut to crack, but there's various people trying to break that one open too. Right. We have these two prongs, right? There's going from the pluripotent cells, the developmental angle, and then there's maintenance of the adult stem cell. And it's interesting because, you know, arguably we haven't cracked either of them and we've thrown a ton of resources at both of those. And, you know, the, the recipe for indefinite self-renewal in the adult or derivation of a bona fide hematopoietic stem cell from pluripotent stem cells, those are the holy grail, right? Um, and those two goals will both inspire and demoralize, I would argue, many scientists and generations to come. Or maybe we're right, we're right you know, on the precipice here and it won't be long. But I have a different tack to take here. And the question is, because I've cracked my head at this and I've seen a lot of people suffer. And I'm not saying it's a negative outcome. It's, it's great. You learn a lot even in the failure. And we're making incremental strides there. But the question I have here is from a therapeutic standpoint, do we even really need to do it? I mean, is there anything that we just cannot underline, cannot do therapeutically without a de novo HSC or a self-renewing adult HSC? Or is it just that getting those endpoints would vastly increase the scale, uh, you know, reduce the cost, increase the scope and efficacy? Is it just a matter of like, it's going to be so much better with them? Or are there really some things that we're just never going to be able to cure or address without reaching those endpoints. What do you think? Yeah, you know, so that that that's a great question because, you know, that is there really a need for this huge number of hematopoietic stem cells or could you do it more simply with more mature cells? And I think that's a possibility. So let me let me tell you what I'm excited about. You know, in that in the past 10 years, we've discovered a whole new branch of um, innate lymphoid cells, for example. And, and these are cells we didn't even know existed more than 15 years ago. Um, th these are cells that behave like T and B cells, those great cells for fighting infection, um, but they don't have a, a T cell receptor or a B cell receptor. They're much easier to grow in a dish. In fact, they're a contaminant of a lot of preps to make T cells and B cells for therapy. And if we start using those to transplant instead, that might be a completely different approach from using hematopoietic stem cells, something more mature, a little bit more, let's say, um, educated. It's more like a teenager rather than a grade school kid. And, and you can do something more useful with them. So I, that's a great area that I'm really interested in. Something interesting about those two, and this is now taking a step back from those expensive cell-based therapies, are there ways we can guide hematopoietic development in you and in me without doing a transplant. And I'll give you a great example. So a few years back, we started doing a study on, on the microbiome. And you know, you'll hear about this all the time. We, we found that depending on what microbiome you get colonized with in the first few weeks of life, 
will determine how you respond as an adult to an inflammatory insult. You know, you mentioned ulcerative colitis and you mentioned, and one that we work on is, is asthma. It's another chronic inflammatory disease. We can show that depending on what biome you get exposed to, you'll either be super sensitive to developing allergies or you'll be resistant. Mm -hmm. And if you know that, then it would be trivial to get somebody to drink a probiotic and or around the time of birth, maybe a pregnant mom to drink a probiotic and try to guide your hematopoietic system away from making those autoallergic cells. Mm. So wow. I think that's a whole new, you know, kind of way of doing things. I like it because it's equitable, right? You can, you can treat people in rural communities in that way. If you know that they're going to be born predisposed to allergic disease or to ulcerative colitis or to Crohn's disease, can you skew their microbiome in a way that prevents them from getting those diseases? You know, it's kind of the, the nature versus nurture argument. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. Something that we don't think about too often. It's almost like the, the analog to, to folic acid in some ways, right? Great example, actually. And, you know, there, I'll, I'll tell you two stories about that and microbiome. So first is that... Um, we find that if you look at kids who you know by the age of five developed allergies and you go back and you look at their cord blood retrospectively, I can pick those kids out. I can look at their cord blood and look at the complement of cells in their cord. And I can tell you almost 100% accuracy which kids are going to get allergic by the age of five. Hmm. So that tells you something in utero was skewing them in advance. With the folic acid, um, it's interesting. There are um, a branch of T cells that develop right around the time you're born um, that respond to bacterial metabolites of, of folic acid and, and riboflavin. And so the bacteria modify those things, so the T cells recognize them and they expand. So that's a great example of how a metabolite can change the way you develop your immune system really early in life and then have a lifelong implication. That's so cool. I mean, it's like, I think we can do an entire discussion just on that topic, on the importance of, you know, the metabolism and the, the diet that you have early during life and it's a downstream impact on your immune system. Um, but, you know, uh, we have a lot to talk about. Maybe we can come sure. back to it a little <laughs> later. I actually wanted to focus on some other aspects of your work as well, including uh, your work uh, focusing on cell surface receptors that are actually expressed by HSCs that yeah. regulate their interactions with the microenvironment. And this is, you know, in relation to what we were talking to. And a lot of the receptors that are expressed in mature blood cells can regulate their trafficking in yes. disease. And in particular, you focused on CD34, which is one of the most famous receptors, you know, CD complex receptors out there. Um, it's perhaps the most widely used markers marker for HSCs. But surprisingly, it seems like not a whole lot is known about CD34's function, even though it's such a popular marker. So tell us about some of your recent work with CD34 and what you're learning about its role and its function in HSC differentiation and function. Yeah, it's, it's funny. That was all serendipity. So um, I, I was working on stem cell markers as a, as a postdoc. And, and we um, right about that time, people had been obviously curious about CD34. There's over 40,000 citations on that molecule in the literature. So everybody was using it as a marker for purifying stem cells. And yet almost nothing was known about what it does. And people knocked out the gene in mice and the mice were happy, healthy, and normal. They did the three Fs, they fed, they fight, they fornicate, they do the three Fs. 
no obvious phenotype, right? So right about that time, we, we cloned another molecule that looked exactly like CD34, but was clearly a different gene and expressed in the same cell types. And we realized that it was a redundant molecule that it could probably compensate if you knocked out CD34. So we started studying that molecule. It's called protocolixin. And, and what we found in that molecule does is it makes cells really mobile and invasive. So it allows cells to move around and colonize new tissues. And, you know, I think that that insight told us instantly a lot about what CD34 does. It, it tends to block adhesion. It tends to make cells a little bit more mobile so they can find these niches when you transplant. Um, CD34 also coats all of your blood vessels in your body and it prevents nonspecific sticking. So it's kind of like a, a Teflon molecule. And, and it's cool because it's a movable Teflon. So, you know, if, if you've got cells circulating and they have a little bit of CD34, they don't stick, but within seconds of getting activated, they'll clear it out of the way and now allow those cells to stick in a tissue specific way. So you've got this movable Teflon that you can use whenever you need it to help cells get to the right place at the right time. And, and I will add to that, um, that the, the protocolixin molecule, the second family member is fascinating. That's where we got most of the clues on how these things work. It gets upregulated on just about um, every form of cancer you would care to study. And when you look at the subsets of cancers that upregulate it, it's always the most metastatic and the most life-threatening. So, so we're finding ways to target it now as a way of you know, dampening down those really hard to treat tumors. And, and the exciting thing is that since it's on not just one type of cancer, but a lot of different types of cancer, we think it might be a great universal therapy for a variety of cancers. Hmm. Yes. I mean, I read up on the uh, protocolixin. I'm ashamed to say, because I like to call myself a vascular biologist, hematopoietic biologist, a hematologist, maybe. Um, but uh, I have an interest, we'll say. And when I read up on it, I, re I realized one, that this was a pretty much a copy of CD34. Um, and that I had no idea even that th there were all these, there was this multiplicity of CD34, meaning the redundancy in what I had always thought that, you know, CD34 knockouts not having a strong phenotype may speak to more of the value of this as a marker and not really speaking to its function. You know, it's not necessary, but clearly it's just so necessary that there's all these pretty much redundancies built into the genome. And we, we don't really understand how, how necessary it is and the diversity of functions that it might fulfill. Um, and, you know, all the subtlety there. And yeah. it's that way with a lot of these CD molecules, right? My, my own group, we recently published a couple of stories that utilize all these CD markers to characterize what? Not blood, not endothelium, but different cell types in ovarian follicles, right? And every organ has a story like that. There's always a CD molecule that'll mark this pancreatic subset or this liver subset, you know, it's, 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 they're ubiquitous, although we don't necessarily understand what they're doing in every niche, but from a therapeutic standpoint, it's been leveraged, you know, these kind of zip codes on these different sp specific microenvironments that are marked by these different CD uh, combinations or complexes. Um, but my question is, does, does the variety and, and multiplicity of function for these CD molecules make 
therapeutic targeting, you know, getting into the targeting. I know a lot of these adoptive cell therapies have used CD molecules as a target. Is that kind of work for you or against you that they're everywhere? Is it because they're in so many places that you'll have a lot of off-target effect? Or on the contrary, is that that you have all this subtlety and permutations such that pretty much any niche that you want in the body can be identified by, you know, let's say five CD markers. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're, you're absolutely right. There, there's a lot of um, overlap and expression patterns and, and distribution, which make it really hard to think of a way to target them selectively. Um, so so that, that's tricky. I, I can tell you one approach that we've taken with 34 and Podoclixin, and, and that's that they're mucin type molecules. They're these molecules that have a lot of modification on the extracellular domain, little sugars added. And, and every cell type adds sugars in a different way, okay? So in the cancer case I gave you, we, we know that if you knocked out podocalyxin, it'd be lethal. It would be a bad thing to do because it's involved in kidney function and a bunch of other functions. Tumor cells modify in a completely different way than all of your normal cells. And in fact, we've made some antibodies that only recognize tumor cells. Don't touch a single cell in the normal tissues. And that's because they modify it differently. So we're, we're using those antibodies now to go in and kill the tumor cells selectively and spare all the normal tissue. So that, that, that's one approach. If you can look for a modification that's unique. Mm -hmm. Other ideas though are um, trying to link ways of identifying cells. So let's say that you have an antibody that will only recognize maybe two surface receptors rather than one. You know, if you can design a, a strategy where you have to have the double recognition in order to kill the cell mm -hmm. or to inhibit the cell, now you've got a much more elegant way of targeting specific tissues. And it comes back to you know, your question, are there five or six molecules that really only identify that one cell type you wanna get rid of? That, that's a strategy you could use. Two antibodies that then, when coupled together, make a toxin that suddenly kills that cell, right? That, that'd be a great strategy. Right. Uh, absolutely. I think, yeah, there are definitely bio, bio, um, biomanufacturing startups and biomedical startups that are really focused on these different CD molecules and different combinations that you might be able to utilize them and perhaps for treating cancers and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I did actually want to dive a little bit more deeply into cell surface markers, not particularly specifically in the, the blood lineages, but kind of more broadly across the body as kind of Dalen was alluding to. Now, I'm, I'm not a blood biologist per se, but I will say that I benefit from a technology that's really closely intertwined with HSCs and the HSC field, and that's facts, right, for us in activated cell sorting, which is so critically reliant on finding good cell surface markers that you can use for sorting different cell types. It's I think the blood field has been able to utilize facts to its fullest extent in part because of all the different discrete cell surface markers that are found and known in, in these different blood cell lineages. But other fields, like I'm a, I'm a cardiovascular biologist, I think other fields are perhaps lagging a bit behind when it comes to actually identifying the appropriate cell surface markers for actually sorting these subtypes. And one example I can give is the cardiomyocyte. Yeah. which, you know, there's, there's only a few well-known, well-characterized cell surface markers that you can actually use for so sorting endogenous cardiomyocytes out there. So, you know, what do you think about this prospect of the non-blood cell types and their 
I guess, limitations and their, uh, there's just not as many good cell surface markers yeah. out there that have been identified for these non-blood cell types. You think it's just a matter of catching up, but just a matter of time before these cell surface markers are identified um, because really the blood field seems to be at the forefront of this, right? I, you know, I think you're, you're spot on, you know, that we, we were lucky that we worked, or I'm lucky that I worked on blood cells because it's easy to get them and you can study them in a dish and you can blow them from a fax really easily. I, I think that the equalizer is going to be the spatial transcriptomic stuff where, you know, you can use these antibodies in a histological section to see really rare cells, pick them out based on where they're localized and then get a nice um, sequence profile from them. That'll lead to discovery of a whole bunch of markers that you know are transmembrane or on the surface of those rare cells that you like to study. And that'll be an equalizer. It'll catch you up on finding molecules you can try to target for therapy in that field. So that, that, that's on the, on the horizon for sure. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, it can happen soon enough, right? Because I, I don't know if this is true, but it seems like a logical inference that the that there's we made such amazing progress in treating hematological malignancy, right? I mean, it's gone, you know, yeah. from 90% mortality to 90% survival in some cancers. And you could say it's that we can appreciate the diversity, right? There's a diagnostic element, we can immunophenotype these cancers and maybe personalize our approach. There's also more recently the immunological approaches, right? Um, and as you were alluding to there, the adoptive transfer for treating the ALL and the B cell and, and there's the key, right? Is it having that specificity, having the two uh, antigens there that you can target to get that specificity and avoid the off-target inflammation? Um, and I wonder, is that, is that in part this, this lead, so to speak, that the blood field has um, on other tissues in, in characterization? Um, you know, it seems like we've got blood-based disease on its heels, but do, do you think that it's like a one-to-one -one that we've broken through with the principles, you know, the therapeutic principles say of adoptive transfer, and we just need to tweak it in order to get it to work either in other tissues and or with solid tumors? Um, or do you think that like, we need a, a, another approach? You said the great equalizer is spatial transcriptomics, I think kind of underscoring that the nature of the blood makes it both more treatable and more diagnosable, more manageable. Um, do you think we're gonna need a whole other tranche of, of technical approaches to really break through on solid tumors? Or do you think we'll be able to extend the current revolutionary technologies and, and tweak them to make them as revolutionary for solid tumors or other uh, organs? Yeah. So Solid tumors are clearly a tough nut to crack. And, you know, you, you know, as well as I do, you know, the, the treatment of ALLs and, and, um, and, and some um, lymphocytic leukemias, even um, the B cell ones have been easy because frequently you wipe out the B cells, but you can live without B cells. Hmm. Um, there's not many cell types in your body you can live without, right? And so, so really the key is trying to find a molecule that's really cancer specific. Hmm. So that, that, that's number one. Um, uh, and then the solid tumors is a second one, because since ALLs are kind of a soluble tumor and they're always floating around in your body, it becomes easy to keep activating those T cells that you transplant and being, those will continue to be therapeutic. 
breaking in through that um, barrier of a solid tumor and killing that is much more tricky um, for, for a bunch of reasons. One is um, simply, you know, spatial and, and, and getting through the, a, a solid tumor into the core where you want to get the uh, tumor initiating cells in the stem cells. That, that's tricky. Second is there seems to be, you know, a strong ability for you to make these immunosuppressive cells. You know, they migrate in, they turn off immune response to solid tumors. And so even if you do transplant in a killer cell, they get turned off as quickly as you transplant them. You know, checkpoint inhibitors are the, are the great example of that. I think we're coming up with ways to deal with that, actually. And, um, you know, I keep coming back to our own stuff, but, you know, this, this protocolixin glycoform that's really exquisitely tumor-specific, interestingly enough, we find that that glycoform is always in the immunologically cold tumors, the ones that don't have any immune cells that you're not actually actively fighting. and that's exciting to me because it means if we target um, that molecule and start killing a few of those cells, it may wake up the immune system so that now you do start having your own body responding to those tumors and wiping them out. And that, that touches on the technology question you had. So um, rare proteins are very tumor specific, but glycosylation can be exquisitely tumor specific. We, we got lucky because we found the one glycosylation that's different on this molecule we study, but there are likely to be hundreds of, of others. And if you really think about it in those terms and you start searching for specific anti-glycosylation antibodies, now you may come up with things that are exquisitely tumor specific and, and you could treat a whole variety of tumors that way. It doesn't have to be you know hematopoietic, it could be solid tumors. Could be gastric cancers. It could be um, could be prostate cancer. Anything you like. Yeah, I think the the application is endless across the the scope of cancers that is out there. Like what you're alluding to, and I also like the analogy that you made of solid tumors being sort of having a shell, really like a shell that you have to break through to get to the the core of of the the stem cell population, the cancer stem cell populations at the interior. And I think we've made a lot of progress, but I, I still think that's the the real you know holy grail and one of the the major hurdles, next steps that we have to have to to get to. Um, I, I wanted to shift a little bit away from the science, the basic science, and focus more on you and in particular your training, because you've had a bit of an interesting path. It seems like you've been a bit of a world traveler. You've conducted portions of your training at many different places across the Western hemisphere, actually, before ultimately settling at UBC. You actually started at Worcester Polytechnic and then moved down south to, to UAB, which is, you know, uh, kind of cool because I'm actually from Alabama myself. Hey. Um, yeah, so uh, that's that's a great connection there. Uh, then you move over to EMBL in Heidelberg, Germany, and finally back to, to Canada, right? So this is actually one of my favorite things to talk about on the show uh, about, you know, training paths, because I think this is really informative for the trainees out there who are hoping to maybe follow in your footsteps and perhaps train in different locations around the world. And it's easier to do these days in modern biomedical research. I think it's, it's truly an international enterprise. And given all the amazing stem cell labs around the world, you know, our field is really at the forefront of making science international. So kind of tell us about your philosophy about traveling to new places, training in different places, different countries, and, and what ultimately made you decide to come back to, to Canada to settle down at UBC? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really a terrific question and one that's near to my heart. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I grew up in rural Virginia and then rural Massachusetts and um, trained at Worcester Polytech and I was all set to become a chemical engineer and then realized there was no real discovery or excitement there, honestly, for me. Um, I, I wanted to work on something new and not time-tested stuff. Uh, got into biotechnology, started learning more about engineering principles and biology, and that led me into the, you know, the immune world. Um, looking for places to do grad studies. I, I had a great professor who said, you know, I heard this brilliant talk from this guy in Alabama, and he was at UAB, and it, it seems like there's a really good research community there. You ought to, you ought to look at that place. And, you know, I, I had spent much much of my years in New England. I wanted to see another part of the country, another part of the world. I wanted to, you know, see if people thought differently, behave differently, you know, what, what can you learn culturally? And so I went to UAB and, and it was a great experience. There, there was a ton of money for research and it was underutilized. And some really talented people who wanted to make that university, you know, the best. And so the, the collaborations were easy. People, you know, as long as you had the goal of showing we can be better than the, other, the rest of the world, they, they had that, that spree de corps. And, and so I really enjoyed my time there. Luckily, I worked for one of the founding fathers of B-cell immunology, a guy named Max Cooper, who, um, who you know, could have gone anywhere, but decided that he had grown up in the South and wanted to make that a new immunological center. He had connections all over the world and encouraged me to go and, and do look at postdocs overseas. And I had noticed in grad school that every professor I studied with, if they had come from overseas or they at least trained overseas, they were much more interesting, much more interesting, much more interesting to talk to, had a different look on life. Um, I could spend hours with them. And, and so I wanted to be more like them, right? So. So I took that opportunity. I went to Heidelberg, went to the EMBL. Fantastic place. It was like, it was like an adult going back to, to grade school, right? Everybody was under 40. Nobody could stay more than nine years. So there was a continual turnover of people. And the, the people were from all over Europe. They were from Spain, Germany, England, Greece, Italy, France. And so you got this hotbed of young people all... Um, with cutting edge technology at their fingertips and all they had to do was create. So great environment, learned a ton about life, you know, learned to speak German, you know, learned to, um, to live in a completely different culture, to completely different view of life. Um, would have gladly stayed in Europe, I enjoyed it a lot. But um, when I was looking for jobs, there was this opportunity in Vancouver and when I interviewed, you know, Vancouver's spectacular for the environment. You just have to take one look and say, wow, this is a beautiful place. Everybody told me, don't look at the place you're going to because you won't see it for five years anyway. You're going to be working too hard. And that was probably true. But the one thing that, that, that nailed it for me was I was going to this biomedical research center, which was the same kind of concept place that I'd always trained. And it was open concept laboratory totally collaborative. Everybody shared projects and ideas freely. Um, it was technology-based. There was great mass spec. There was great cell sorting. There was great um, sequencing and things like that. So it, it was exactly the environment that I had always sought out. One where you can share your ideas freely without being, you know, having them stolen from you, where people want to work together 
and realize they can do more by putting, if you, if you have two different people and they both put their toys in the sandbox, you've got twice as many toys to play with and you can put them together in more interesting ways mm -hmm. than if you try to keep everything yourself. So, um, so yeah, that, 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 that's what encouraged me to go overseas. That's what encouraged me to, to take every job I've ever taken. Wow. What a journey. Mobile. And I think, yeah. Mobile is an under, understatement. Definitely. Um, I agree with you entirely. I think these days in biomedical research, because there are so many amazing opportunities and so many different amazing institutions that you can work at around the world. I think it's as a trainee, if you're able to, I think it's, 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 you should take advantage and travel to not, you know, different parts of your country, but different countries as well. I think it, it expands your horizons, lets you meet friends and colleagues that will expand your network ultimately all over the world. And it's something I'm sure that you benefit from. I'm sure you can rely on a, a network of colleagues from literally around the world. So yeah. that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So, you have to jump out of your comfort zone and you have to leap off the, into that swimming pool and say, you know, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be, I will learn so much. And Hey man, you know, how many years do you have in your life to learn something? You know, you're, you're not going to, at the end of the day, say, I wish I stayed home. You're going to say, God, I wish I'd gone to that one opportunity in that far off place, right? You want to look back and say, I did it all. And you don't want to say I missed out on anything. Take a chance, travel the world like Dr. McNagney. Why not? Why not? So thank you so much for joining us on here on the show, Dr. McNagney. And it's been amazing, you know, hearing about your journey and also your expertise in the blood stem cell field as well. And before you go, we always like to ask our guests a couple of peripheral questions just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So first off, if you weren't a blood biologist, a stem cell biologist, what would you be? I would be an archaeologist because I am fascinated with history. I love pre-Columbian history. I love ancient history. I love seeing how cultures evolved and how um, views of life evolved. So yeah, I, I, I'm a buff of history. That's an easy one. Absolutely. And it kind of dovetails well with your passion for traveling as well, you know, experiencing different cultures historically and presently. So that makes perfect sense to me. And then the last question we're going to ask you is, What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? And this can be professional or not. Yeah, uh, professional, it, it's both. Um, so choose the people, the mentors wisely. And, and let's start from a professional level. Pro professionally, you will always have a time. Well, let's, let's backtrack. There are smart people everywhere, right? Some of them are fun to work with. Some of them are not, <laughs> and, and you can be successful and not be a lot of fun. If you're gonna be a student, a postdoc, any career, you're gonna spend a lot of time with whoever your mentor is. And so you should on a gut level, really, really have that feeling you like that person and you wanna spend hours with them. They captivate your imagination. Because if you don't have that feeling, you won't put in the hours, you won't put in the time and you'll fail. And the second is that those people who get have that gut level feeling for, they're going to bail you out when you get in trouble. And I don't care who you are. There will always be a time in your career when you've got trouble. You'll run out of money. You'll run out of resources. Um, you'll need a bridge for something. You'll need a letter of recommendation. You know, you will always need help. And you want to go and find those people who you know will be there when, when you need that help. Everybody's going to need it. So choose those mentors wisely. Capture imagination and you know we'll be there when you need them. 
That's a great point. And I'm just now nostalgic for all the trouble I got into and all the trouble <laughs> my mentors got me out of. <laughs> um, because it's true, you know, I love, I love my mentors. And in fact, not just the, the, you know, the heads of lab, but everyone who's ever, you know, been, been an assist in any way. And it's because they were, they made the investment and you can tell, you know, someone that you have a gut feeling for, oftentimes it's because it's reciprocal and they, they've made an investment in you. So if you get that, keep it and uh, cherish it because it is a great gift and it's what gets you through. Um, it's not easy being a scientist, Kelly, you know, uh, Rune, you know, we all know it, but uh, the people around us, the ones who prop us up. Thanks for sharing so much about your time as a scientist and your wise words and uh, I'm sure everyone out there really appreciates it Dr. McNagney we got to have you back on sometime soon but for now that'll be it thanks thank you all right y'all that brings us to the end of this episode don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers you can also reach out to us on twitter at stem cell podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the leadership of the ISSCR, so be sure to tune in for that one. 